0: Honestly, since the beginning of this year, I began to recognize something in myself. I began to recognize that I was struggling to really hold on to or find hope, big picture and small picture. There's things in my life that felt hopeful, but I found myself much more drawn towards cynicism. This is not unique to this season of my life. I've often been somebody that have have found myself leaning towards cynicism, but it felt particularly strong as I started this year. And so I decided I was gonna do whatever I could to try to find and fuel hope within myself, hope about the world around me, hope about my life, hope about the people I love, And so I started trying to figure out what that looked like, and for me, one way that that found life was to turn to a part of the Bible that I've often found helpful when I'm feeling seasons, like Jen talked about this morning, where the world feels uncertain, where it feels like a hopeful vision for the future doesn't always feel clear, And this whole reason is in part why my current series of talks here at Brownline Vineyard, we've been talking about how hard it is to find hope, how hard it is to hold on to and operate with hope. And in this series, we've been looking at the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament, which have been a huge inspiration to me and were a huge inspiration and starting point for Jesus The prophetic writings of the Old Testament were written over hundreds of years in the midst of the rises and the falls of Israel, centuries before the time of Jesus. And I actually think for us modern Americans, the best way to put ourselves in the feet, in the place of the Old Testament prophets is to think of them as resistance literature, words that speak truth to power. Words from voices of non-powerful people protesting and critiquing what they see is wrong in those around them. You know, we've been taking time each week to carefully put ourselves in that mindset because if you were like me, somebody who experiences plenty of privilege in life, and you grew up exposed to the Bible like I did, perhaps you at some point begin to chafe at the words of the old testament prophets i times found them kind of hard to swallow morally and the chances are it's because in a world of privilege the prophets are often flattened out into object lessons like what we see in the midst of things of war violence oppression is is a kind of really just speaking to how i relate to my coworkers today And I'm not saying object lessons are bad. I think any time we take something away that pushes us towards a more connected and loving life is positive. But when we read the prophets in this light, the threats, the stakes, the weightiness of the conversation in the prophets feels out of proportion. When we read things like God will dash the heads of their children against the rocks, it feels out of proportion when we take it as an object lesson. But this is why I think we are helped by remembering that the prophets prophets are not coming from a world of privilege. The prophets are resistance literature. They are speaking hope. They are speaking truth to power in times where that feels very needed to people who very much need that. And I think in reading this in this light, it unlocks the kind of moral courage and timelessness for America today. And the other thing about the prophets that I so appreciate is not only do they speak truth to power, but they unwaveringly speak of a hopeful future, which again, for me, feels hard to come by. I don't feel alone in this. I found myself in a conversation with coworkers this week talking about what do we do to feel hope? Like, what's our game plan here to not let the challenges and struggles that we see in the world around us beat us down? And so to continue our series today, I want to take a look at the prophet Jonah. Jonah is actually a prophet in a relatively peaceful time in Israel's history. So the story of Jonah is, God comes to Jonah and tells him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to go tell them that their injustice, their infighting, their cruelty are going to lead to them being destroyed if they don't change. Interestingly enough, eventually when Nineveh is destroyed in the future, it is largely due, historians believe, to civil war and civil strife. But I think there's a little context that's helpful for us of why this was such a big ask on Jonah. It's because the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, had conquered and occupied Israel in the not-so-distant past. Actually, in fact, the main reason that Israel right now is in peaceful lands with their borders actually protected is because Assyria had to withdraw due to its own internal issues and its own threats. And so at the time of Jonah, you have Israel just back on some solid, peaceful footing— And at this moment, God goes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, tell them that if they don't change, they're going to face destruction. Go and save them. And this ask would not have just been like a literal risk on Jonah, going to your enemies, going to those who have killed your people in the recent history. But it was also a very emotionally challenging ask. Telling him to go to his recent imperial oppressors and try to save them. And so I think in my past experiences with Jonah, sometimes when I hear what he did in response to this, I have judged him. Because what he did was run away when God said, Go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. But the truth is, I don't think I judge him at this point. The ask put on him was heavy. So he hops on a boat with a group of sailors, tries to sail off in the other direction. And it says that there's a storm that is brought by God. The sailors are so afraid for their lives that they throw Jonah overboard to save themselves. And then Jonah is swallowed by a fish where he lives within its belly for three days. I just want to take a quick aside here. We actually, thank you to Christina Culver, who puts together all of our lessons plans for uh, Kids Church. And I was leading Kids Church last week, and I didn't know this was coming up. But we actually read this story. We read the story of Jonah in our storybook Bible last week with our Kids Church. And we looked around the group, and we were were talking about this experience. And and somebody, uh, one of the kids, immediately recognizes an imagery of this that they remember from Pinocchio of Pinocchio being inside the belly of the whale. And there's a conversation about whether this really happened. And so I I say to the kids, we have ages two through eight that are in the room right there. And I ask them, I go, you know, some people, it feels really important. They believe that this this actually happened. And some people think that this was maybe more of a pretend. What do you guys think? Just poll them. What do you guys think about this? And there was a pretty even split between Team Real and Team Story. It was like... okay interesting we you know some people were arguing like there's no way they could have survived that and then somebody else was like no absolutely I heard that this could absolutely happen and then someone else was like I think that fish probably got eaten by a shark it was just a it was a positive experience and here's the thing I want to say it wasn't like those who said it was real benefited from the story alone Or those who said they thought it was a story that was trying to teach us something only understood the real depth of the message. No, I think they were all able to hear and benefit from what it said. And you know, that permission, for me, was not something I felt as a child in church. I was not asked, I was told. And then presented the choice to either accept or reject it. And that led to a lot of anxiety for me around reading the Bible as an adult. And perhaps maybe you've had a similar experience here. When you come up to things and the question is like, do I think that actually happened? Or do I think that's trying to tell me something else? When those things come up, it provokes anxiety within us. That how I answer that question is the dependent of whether I get what God has for me. And I just want to say, I want to offer you as the adults of this church the same permission I offered the children is to release you from that anxiety of this or any other places in the Bible that leave you wondering or questioning. The did this really happen or is this a story question is not what everything hinges on. What it hinges on is have a living God that interacts with us and brings us to truth and understanding. So I'm not sure where I fall on this. I have my leanings and my perspectives, but I firmly believe that I have been helped by Jonah either way. So, to continue on in the story of Jonah, he's in the belly of the fish. If Pinocchio's imagery helps you, you can live there too. And while he's in there, he repents to God and says, Yes, I will go to Nineveh. Not happily, begrudgingly, he acquiesces. God has the fish throw up, spits him up onto shore. He goes to Nineveh, tells them, If you guys do not change your ways, you are going to have destruction here. And shockingly, Nineveh listens They repent and they change. But Jonah still laments in anger that this happened at all. You know, there's a few helpful applications that I've seen thinkers pull out of this, that I've seen helpfully brought out of the story of Jonah. You know, one of them is that God cares for all of humanity, even when it's undeserved. He wanted to bring mercy and compassion to the people of Nineveh even though they had done nothing to show that they deserved mercy or compassion. It is a powerful and poignant picture of the inclusive nature of God. Some people have pointed out that it shows us God's persistence in leading us to our calling. That there's things that he calls us to in life, and that he, in fact, pursues us to help us find it. Others have shown it as a cautionary tale of xenophobia. That Jonah is an example of somebody whose fears and hate for others leaves him in a place of anger and bitterness. That those nations that are not like us should be hated. And God shows us that his heart is quite different. His heart is in a place of love and acceptance. I find all of those helpful. I find those all to be different ways, and at different points in my life, they have spoken powerful to me. But there's another application that I came across recently that I just want to bring us to today because I have found it helpful. It was something that I read from a Palestinian theologian, Dr. Naveen Saras. She writes, The author of the book of Jonah, does not inti- intend to show Jonah as a rebel against Yahweh or God's will, or as a xenophobe who hates the Gentiles. Nor does the author present Jonah as a believer of ethnocentric nationalism, but as one who has come, who comes from an oppressed minority group, who is legitimately worried about the survival of his people Jonah's desire for the fall of Nineveh, even after the city had repented, is really about his hope to see the end of the oppression of his people. Jonah does understand the compassionate character of Yahweh, who gives chances to the wicked and who is merciful. But he was consumed by concern for the safety of his people. From a minority perspective, we see Yahweh use Jonah whose people were oppressed by the Assyrians, to challenge the imperial power of Assyria. This means Yahweh used the powerless to transform the powerful. The book of Jonah is an empowerment of the oppressed, encouraging them to believe that they can bring change. We can see in Jonah's calling of the Ninevites to repentance as an example of non-violent protest bringing change. As I, speaking as Naveem, as I read Jonah as a Palestinian woman familiar with marginalization and oppression, I find the book of Jonah to be a source of encouragement to continue to use the nonviolent methods to effectively challenge oppression. And so, with that in mind, I actually want us to read the last chapter of Jonah. Something that actually for a long time sat poorly with me, something that left me feeling like Jonah was petulant. However, when I read it with Naveem Sarah's words in my mind, it opens up meaning and power to me. And so to read this, this is right after Nineveh has repented and been saved. Jonah says, <clears throat> But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that, uh, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live.' But the Lord replied, "'Is it right for you to be angry?' Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see uh, what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I could die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell, the right hand from the left, and also many animals? We see Jonah filled with anger at the sparing of Nineveh. I am compelled to think that it is not just his petulance that led him there, but the experience of somebody who has felt the oppression of that country, that nation. And I think to me, reading Jonah in this light, it gives me hope. It gives me hope that things can change. That nonviolent protests can make a difference. I think this is not small. And the reason I think this is not small is sometimes missed by me. That's why it was helpful for me to read the words of Naveem, a Palestinian woman. Having her, knowing what we know about the history of what Palestine has experienced with modern day Israel, hearing her read a message that says war and murder are not the only ways to fight for change. To hear that and to believe that for somebody who's experienced marginalization is incredibly important. To believe that God is actively working for change is incredibly important. And to hear stories of how change happened without call to violence gives hope for those who long for change and sometimes wonder if violence is the only option. And the truth is, this is not unique to Jonah. Time and time again, we see God in the Bible use the voice of the oppressed, the voice of the outcast, the suffering to be the agents of change. We see this most powerfully in the person of Jesus, the one who we take our cues for here as a church. Jesus, the one whose life was the ultimate protest willingly becoming a victim of the powerful so the powerless did not have to be. So I have a few takeaways for what this leads me to, Whether this leaves me after reading Jonah. And the first I have are what are the ways that we can make space for nonviolent change? My first suggestion is speak up and support. So frankly put, real change is unlikely to happen if we were relying on those who are benefiting from the status quo to lead that change. There's a lot of words, I'm gonna say one more time. Real change is unlikely to happen if we are relying on those who are benefiting from the status quo to lead that change, like me. Just the cost and the stakes are just lower. If nothing changes, I'm still doing pretty good. Throughout our history as a nation, we've seen examples of change coming through people speaking up. We think of the Civil Rights Movement, people like Dr. King and Rosa Parks. We think of the many women's voices that spoke up and what we saw through the Me Too Movement. You know, it was members of the LGBTQ community that led the way for the legalization of gay marriage. So what I am saying is if you here are somebody who's experienced marginalization, you are somebody here where the status quo is not built to benefit you, we need your voice to lead. At this church, Vince and I are abundantly aware that we started a church with two white guys leading it. It's probably the thing we pray about more than anything is trying to figure out how do we live out our vision with that being true. We need your voice to lead. And so, for those like me who benefit from the status quo, I think my encouragement is make room, elevate, encourage, and support those who are speaking. There is a cost for speaking up, there is a cost to protest. This is where I personally find Jonah so helpful. For Jonah to go to Nineveh and call for their change, there was like a literal potential cost. The cost could have been his life. He was speaking out in a way that could have led to him being imprisoned or killed. But it was more than that. I think we see this in his anger. The cost of having to be the one to speak up for change in the face of their, his, his oppressors, there was an emotional cost. There was a burden and a weight that he carried that left him angry. You know, sometimes this cost comes out in the exhaustion of carrying an oversized burden. And sometimes it comes out, and we often use this term, I think, improperly, but in this case, I would say righteous anger at the injustice experienced. And so when we see somebody from a marginalized experience, speaking up, those of us who have privilege, I think actually can often be most helpful by making room for their voice, which for me is a challenge because that often means shutting up. Using whatever power and privilege we have to elevate their voice. And maybe most importantly, just being an encouragement and a support to care in the face of all of the other narratives that tell them they should be quiet in terms of all of the microaggressions that make them question themselves. To be somebody that is giving a counter-narrative of please keep speaking, you're doing a great job, Uh, how can I help you, how can I support you? I think that that is often what we can do because we cannot do this together. Yes, I said all of those movements were led by people where the stakes of this were most powerfully felt, but they were followed through by an entire community of people supporting that change, even those who did not directly benefit from it and at times actually had cost for seeing that change come. My suggestion in all of this, and I think this is important, because even in this first one, I think we have so many experiences and examples of seeing people try to speak up, seeing people try to make change, and feeling like it falls apart, feeling like the pushback is so disheartening that it steals hope. And so my next suggestion is to tell stories of hope to each other. It is much easier, and I find it much easier, to complain about what I see in the world. It is much easier for me to point out the things that I lament. But we need to hear stories of hope and change for us to keep moving forward. You know, there's, uh, there's two ancient Greek philosophers Heraclitus and Democritus and they were both wrestling with w- one question. The question is what do we do to respond to the suffering that is so obvious around us? And Heraclitus decided the way he would do it is he he would weep. Every day he would just weep when he he would think and see and I think especially in the ancient Greek world, the suffering around you was, was, it's almost like, you know, our Facebook feed, but like in the streets around us. And he would just weep, letting his heart break. But Democritus took a different approach. He was known for his laughter. He laughed freely and openly and strongly. And now it was not a cynical laugh. It was not a patronizing laugh. It was a deep, heartfelt laugh. And he said the reason that he laughed is that when he looked at the world around him, he knew that he had no challenge in being aware of the suffering. And so whenever he did see something of good, he felt like he needed to enjoy it as much as he could. If he saw something funny, if he saw something meaningful, he needed to lean into that, knowing that reality around him would bring him back to the familiarity of the suffering around And that actually, in fact, his awareness of the suffering around him made those moments of joy that much richer. And I think we need that. We need to laugh. We need to celebrate. And we need to tell each other stories of what this looks like. I was talking about earlier this week some of my coworkers who work in a school system specifically around trying to address issues of educational inequity, particularly along the lines of race. And we were talking about how do we find hope when we see so many examples that, that see how big and systemic the problems we're fighting against are. And the biggest answer anybody said is we just need to keep telling the stories of, of victory. We need to keep talking about the student who came into this grade two years behind in reading level and is now no longer receiving reading support because he's on grade level. We need to tell the stories about teachers who used to have practices that were directly disadvantaging the students of color in the room who came to awarenesses to change, to try to move forward in seeing their whole classroom. We need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate the times that students that were hungry are now actually getting food and showing up ready for the day. I, like these are things that fill us with hope. And if we don't tell each other these stories, I don't think we have enough to combat the hopelessness we feel. So my encouragement is, as often and as frequently as you can, hold on to and think of the stories in your life that give you hope. You know, this church, we are never going to be a place that gives you false hope. We are never going to give you trite answers. That is a commitment from us here. I'm not going to tell you everything your life's just going to be okay. Like that, I believe that you can do it not alone. That is never who we are going to be. But we are going to be the community that gives us a vision for hope and change. And I think to all of us here, that's to make sure we tell stories that I'd also just encourage, we'll do this in a minute, is just to pray for hope. This, I think this is one of the things I've done this year is daily. God, help me see what's hopeful. Let me feel hope, not as an abstract thing, but as a felt thing, that I feel hopeful so that it can fuel the things that I do in my life. Hopeful about my vision for this, my life, hopeful about my vision for the world, and help me be resilient and fight off cynicism and apathy when I experience disappointment in that. And then lastly, I felt like if we're talking about what Naveem in another part of her book said, that Jonah is the, the first kind of big picture, the, actually the prophets in general are like our first pictures of nonviolent protest in the ancient world, it would feel important to say, is there ways that we can participate in nonviolent protest or advocacy around us? Whether it is literally seeing something going on and saying, yes, I'm going to go march with them. Or maybe it is advocating for something within your own workplace, But I think that the place here is we can't take on everything in the world. I think asking the question of what does God have for me and what does he lead me to is important. And so that's what I want to do. I want to pray for us all here. I want to pray for all of us to find hope. Hope in our life. Hope in our vision for the future. Hope for a God that is actually fighting for justice and good. So if everyone wants to stand with me, I invite you to stand. We'll invite Uh, Vince come forward who's going to lead us in a time of singing and prayer in a moment. We'll have a team of people available in that middle section to pray with us. If you have any, like, physical, emotional, circumstantial need in life, these are really awesome, safe people that just come alongside us and pray with us. We find that God tends to show up in pretty cool and surprising ways. And while Vince is playing, we encourage you to Engage in whatever way feels best to you. If you want to dance and clap and sing along, go for it. If you want to sit back and let the music hit you and let it be a more reflective experience, our goal here is to create space for you to find the connection that you're looking for. Jesus, I am thankful that you are a God of hope. I am thankful that you are a God who can bring change, who can see healing, who can see movement. And I know for myself, I struggle to hold on to that hope. I struggle to believe that there is good in front of me. And I just pray for this moment right here, we would be filled with hope. Be filled that the things we dream for ourselves, the things that we dream for the world are moving forward. Not in blind naivete, but as a necessity for our hearts to stay soft, a necessity for our hearts to stay in a place that can keep moving forward. Don't find resignation. Don't find apathy. Don't find cynicism, but stay moved. And I pray each one of us in this space would feel a sense of our hearts softening. Feel a sense of ourselves opening up to what the world could be and believing that we are not alone in that and you are with us in that. And then you are with us in that when we experience disappointment and that you keep on Offering us hope. And just lastly, I, if I, I think one of the reasons that I struggle to find hope sometimes is just because I feel angry about injury done. That I sometimes find my anger about injustice that I see. And I think that there's opportunity for God to just bring some healing. I just, for those of us who feel angry, at what we see, angry at things done to us, angry at things we see done to others, and that that anger is actually robbing us from hope, robbing us from fighting for more change. I ask right now for healing. So sorry for what was done. It is not right, that is not God's heart. And I ask right now that you would bring some deep sense of reassurance, deep sense of healing, and seeing us in that anger.